Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, and welcome to episode number 112 of the Master and Pursuit podcast. And of course, this is the podcast that brings you a number of things. It brings you workouts, which you can download and run along with me as if I'm there with you, if that's your thing. It brings you conversations with the elites as part of our scheme to invest in underfunded British elite marathon runners. And it brings you recovery rambles, where I run nice and easy around the soggy, wet, but beautiful Epping Forest and talk about something that's on my mind. And today, on Wednesday the 1st of February, that's what we've got. We've got a recovery ramble, but we're not in Epping Forest. Controversially opted for a change of scenery and instead... We're lumping ourselves around Hampstead Heath, getting high up above London, into the woods, seeing what we can see, having a little run around. And today we're going to ramble about leadership, leadership in 2023. I'll talk about what all of that means in a minute and what I'm likely to ramble on about. First, it is the 1st of February. January is but a distant memory. It's up the hill, going down the hill now. If you didn't know, Hampstead Heath is a touch on the undulating side. So January's but a distant memory. What's been going on? Well, a few things. A few things worth talking about. The East End Lions are back in action. The under 10s have been playing some good football. Enjoyed a really good match last weekend against PFA United. 5 1 win. But they were rampant. It's like the cavalry all bombing forward. Any opportunity. Lots of fun. Always a challenge trying to keep ahead of a bunch of 9 and 10 year old kids. But all good fun. I'm out today, it's a little bit muddy but it's not too bad, but I'm out today in my, my road shoes and specifically I'm wearing a pair of Adidas Boston 9s which are a bit old now, the uppers have nearly gone but for the life of me can I find a pair of shoes that is as comfy, as fast, as fun and as supportive as these the answer to that is no and in the process of trying to find some I end up with loads of shoes at home so I've also started this year trying to flog my old shoes digging the old eBay account out having a little look through working out what to do and so far I've sold two pairs of shoes 
I'll make it available to everyone in the UK. Happy to post it. First pair goes to someone I know. Only obviously discovered this after he bought them. Second pair went to someone who lives around the corner. What are the chances of that? Now, I know you're deeply fascinated by the ins and outs of my eBay life. But we'll quickly move on. But just to say, if anyone spots any shoes that can help my feet, like the Boston 9s do, or the Boston 8s even, let me know. But let's move on. The other thing that's been going on this week is the announcement of the London Marathon Elite Fields. London Marathon, April 23rd. It'll be here before you know it. I'm just going to head left here into, into Kenwood House, into the gardens. And the headlines on the elite field from a British perspective are all about Farah and his, his farewell race. Says it's going to be emotional. And Ailish McColgan and her debut. Great things are kind of expected of Ailish. Let's just hope not too much pressure is placed upon her on her debut. But it'll be interesting to see how she, how she performs, alongside Charlotte, of course, and Jess Piasecki, so two of the top four British female athletes of all time, plus Ailish, plus a long list of others. Should be fun, should be exciting. Same is true of the men, lots of men are slated to run, so that'll be great. And of course, in our latest newsletter, we talk about the current standards in British marathon running in some depth and in that we compare the current standards to the global picture as of today but also the historic picture so it's great big big announcement big headlines lots of good names let's see what happens nearer the time because of course the race is still a little way away yet and the attrition rate for people entering the London Marathon and completing it or starting it even at an amateur level is pretty high something like one in five don't make it to the start line for whatever reason usually injury perhaps an illness so what will it be like for the elites let's see and then let's get excited in april long way to go just going past kenwood house doing a bit of work over here 17th century stately home I think it's an art gallery now that's beautiful lovely gardens good spot in the summer some people up ahead doing some tree tree felling or something similar a bit of tree work let's get away from them shall we Actually, the last thing before we move on to talk about leadership is that I've been, I've been putting some of these thoughts about the standards of British marathon running in social media, including a picture of Ron Hill in a string vest to reference his 1970 performance of 209, a world record at the time. And it is by far the most engaged with tweet or piece of social media that I think I've ever done. Ron Hill in a string vest. Who knew? Right, let's get on and talk about leadership. Let's talk about what we're here for. So leadership in 2023. 
how it's changed, what's different. I'm actually inspired in this one by the words of my wife, who via her coaching and facilitation business, imaginatively titled the Hobbs Consultancy, she's been talking about sustainable leadership. And sustainable is obviously not a unique word or an exclusive word, but it is an interesting one. And it's a word that's been somewhat subjugated by environmental debate. And sustainable has become known around environmental concerns. I talked about it in the last podcast, of course, as well, about setting sustainable goals. And she talks about sustainable leadership. And in that, she talks about three things. She talks about sustainable business, so creating something that can endure and staying switched on to that as the world changes in its typically dynamic fashion. She talks about sustainable working practices, and that's really about making sure that we can continue to be fit to work, fit to practice, creating sustainability between your work and your home life, which is becoming increasingly difficult to do in many quarters. And she talks about sustainability in regards to the environment as well. And I think that's all really interesting because we are definitely seeing a shift, perhaps a generational shift in leadership and what it means. So let's just unpick that a little bit. And part of that is, of course, a more diverse leadership landscape. So in simple terms, but not just this, a shift from male leadership to female leadership, which has been going on for a while in some sectors, slower in others. And it's interesting because I'll touch on my experience here as a male and my experience of male leadership, because being the age that I am, I grew up in a world of male leadership. And what I mean there is, I grew up in the business world, in a world of male leadership. And in that environment, as a male, as a leader, you're expected to be tough. You're also expected to have a high profile. Lead from the front. Make it about you. Make tough decisions. And I can remember throughout my career being under pressure to make tough decisions, being told I wasn't tough enough and being told I wasn't high profile enough. And what happened to me in that is that to start with, I thought, right, okay, I'll show them. So I started making tough decisions. Started trying to raise my profile. And all that happened was I ended up making a bunch of inauthentic decisions. And these are decisions, some of which I regret to this day. Some of them make me shudder with a bit of shame. And I'm sorry to anybody who was on the wrong end of any of that at the time. But then over time, I figured that that wasn't for me. And I wanted to be different, both in my leadership style and ultimately in what I did. And that's why I'm here today, doing this. And not screaming and shouting at people over things that 
they really don't deserve being screamed and shouted at about. The record wasn't really a screamer or a shouter, but there were some moments when the foot was being put down for the sake of the foot being put down. Oh, it's a bit muddy here. I'm coming along this way, just up from Kenwood House now, because there's a good old memory along here. My children used to come, here it is there. My children used to come here on school trips and there's a big old oak tree that's hollow at the bottom. And when they're little, they can fit all the way through it and back out the other side. And it's the story they used to tell themselves. But it was, it was the fairy tree and it contained magic. And we've come up here a number of times in the past to experience that with them outside the school trips. But I digress. Getting back to our leadership discussion. And the interesting thing there, I think, is as we've shifted and we're shifting in leadership styles and leadership culture from those aggressive male styles of leadership, which I know still exist, to female ones. It started with it really just being about females leading. The behaviours didn't necessarily change. But what I think we're seeing now in some sectors, and I'm going to talk about one in particular in a moment, I think we're seeing a new stage where the style of leadership is changing too. And actually gender is less important than leadership style. And really what I'm talking about here is something I've spoken a little bit about before, which is empathetic leadership. And so I'm now going to go on and talk about that some more. And I'm going to turn to sport, as I so often do. I'm going to turn to sport for some lessons on leadership using some recent examples of what I mean. And in that, we are going to talk about Serena Wiegman, Ben Stokes, Gareth Southgate, Andy Murray, and Lionel Messi. Oh, where's this going to go? Let's start with Serena Wiegman, the Dutch coach of the English national football team for women. The Lionesses, the winners of the, the Euros at Wembley last summer. So let's just talk about her leadership for a minute in the context of, of football, a very male-dominated space historically, to the point where the first interesting thing to say about her is that she has an incredible level of passion for what she does and it would seem that that would come from her youth when football for women was banned in Holland in, in the Netherlands and to be able to play with boys she had to cut her hair short and basically act like a boy and she never really says this but I would think that the that experience has really driven her on to champion women's football and get stuck into women's football so that others can enjoy what she ultimately enjoyed, which is a fruitful professional career and a life, I guess. So she had a passion. Well, she has a passion for football. That's the first key point. The second key point, I think, to the success of her leadership is her skills, both as a footballer herself and as a coach. When you hear her talk about the game, you know that she's highly skilled in what she does. 
And for me, that's important because it buys credibility. It gives her a license. It gives her a license in which to lead others in a way that gets the most out of them in time. Because the third thing I want to talk about after, after passion and her skills or her experience is her nature, her style. And this is really about inclusivity. It's about gaining agreement amongst the team, about involving them, getting their commitment. And it's actually about creating an environment that they can trust and in which they feel safe. And she does that. She creates that environment by talking, by listening, and by learning to the people she's trying to involve and get the most out of. She learns about them, but she also displays vulnerability herself. There we go, past the dog walkers of Hampstead Heath. Busy down this end, we're getting down towards Parliament Hill. So she opens up, she doesn't say how she opens up or what she says, but she clearly does. Gains their trust. And when you talk to the players or listen to the players, they'll say that she makes everyone feel valued, everyone feel heard, everyone feel listened to, and that she's done an amazing job of bringing them all together. And again, when you listen to her, she'll say the talent was always there. It's more about bringing them all together. That was the coaching job. And then from that environment that she's created, the players take responsibility. And she talks about it as the players take action. They now feel trusted, they feel safe. And she talks about how football is a game of mistakes. And I know this from Eastern Lions under 10s. They make mistakes all the time. It's a dynamic game with lots of uncontrollable factors. Mistakes happen. People make decisions that are mistakes and then they execute them mistakenly. Both or either of those things. And it happens. And it's okay. She'd much rather her team took action and did something, perhaps took a risk, than did nothing at all. And I really like that because it's, I really like the language of taking action. It's not just taking responsibility, it's taking action. It's the doing that's interesting. And effectively what she's doing there is removing the fear of failure that has held back sports people, particularly in Britain, for many, many a decade. And she's removed that fear of failure, but what she's also done really effectively is create a sense of independence free thinking amongst the people that she is coaching and is charged with getting the best out of. Because once they're on the pitch, there's not a lot she can do. She can't really influence their decision making. She can't really inf influence their positional play, the way they talk to each other. It's up to them. And I always think of that as a parallel in run coaching. Once you're, once you're out there, once the starting gun has gone, there's not a lot your coach can do. It's down to you. And I learned from the early days of my run coaching career, where I'd spend many fruitless hours looking at tracker apps on marathon day, watching people's performance, 
in real time, thinking I was invested in it, thinking I was helping. But in reality, I was just driving myself up the wall. So I'll stop doing that now. Just wait to the end. So once you're out there, it's all down to you. The coach's job is to create the environment for success. Of course, in partnership with the people involved, whose job it is to, to get out there and do the work. So we've got three things there. We've got passion. We've got skills and experience. We've got an inclusive approach. The parakeet likes them. But we've also got a fourth thing. And here, let's not be fooled, they wanted to win. She wanted to win. It was about the winning. But the success brings something with it. And there's a responsibility to be socially conscious. And they talk really clearly, the, the women's football team, about their desire to be an inspiration to girls all over the country and perhaps beyond. Perhaps driven by Serena's experience as a child herself. And that's something the players have spoken about a lot and very eloquently spoken about it as well. And it's what drove Gabby Logan in the broadcast of the world of the Euros drove her to say some people think it's all over aping the 1966 Men's World Cup victory commentary but it's only just begun which is a fun powerful line so I think we can take a lot from that from Serena Wiegman about empathetic leadership about passion about skills and experience, about inclusivity, and about being socially conscious. Let's move on. Let's talk about the men's football team. Let's talk about Gareth Southgate. What's his passion? Well, his passion would appear to be for football, for England, and for the development of young people, which is something he talks about quite a lot. What about his skills? And his experience, well, his skills, as he's a footballer himself, played for England, but he also had an experience of playing for England that no one would want to have, of missing a crucial penalty. And that makes him highly credible for the position that he's in now. The third thing, about agreement, about consensus, inclusivity, about independence, about creating a trusted and safe environment, as you can see how he's done that actually some, in some ways in the treatment of the people who have transgressed the trusted environment his treatment of Mason Greenwood and Joe Gomez over time springs to mind raised eyebrows in the media to the layman like myself and why is he doing that? But it would seem that they didn't fit within the trusted environment or rather they broke the trust within the environment and you have to have to deal with that for the credibility of the trust itself with all the others you make allowances for one and others will see that and transgress themselves 
but he has also quite recently and quite tellingly shown some vulnerability himself. But shall I carry on as England manager? Do I really want to? The negative comments at the game against Hungary at Wolverhampton, we lost 4 0. The boos are hitting hard, and he was able to talk about that. Other managers, previous managers, might have been tempted to, to say things like, well, it's part of the job, I've got to get on with it, I've got to develop a thick skin, people are entitled to their opinions, blah, blah, blah. And while he might well think that, that doesn't mean he doesn't have feelings about them. And those feelings impact upon how he feels about his ability to continue to do the job. And then, the final part is in creating an inclusive environment, and the final part is doing so with a social conscience. And you can look at his responses to racism, Black Lives Matter, the one knee symbols, and the continued commitment to that as an example of how he maintains that social consciousness. I guess the one black mark against him is Harry Kane not wearing the pride armband because FIFA said that they would book him if he did. Which, incidentally, is an example of male ego leadership in action. So we can argue about whether Southgate has got the best out of his players, whether he should have brought Rashford on earlier than the 85th minute against France in the World Cup, whether he should have played Foden more, Grealish more, etc, etc. But what is clear and obvious is the empathetic leadership in which he has displayed throughout. Now let's move on a little. Let's move on to cricket. Let's talk about Ben Stokes as a leader. Now running and cricket have quite good crossovers in audience. They're both a bit nerdy, the sports. I love both sports for various reasons, variously differing reasons. But let's talk about Ben Stokes, the England cricket captain. Now what's he done? Let's talk about what he's done first. In the space of 12 months, England's cricket team have gone from hopeless losers, getting whacked by the Aussies in the ashes, to unbelievable winners, winning from all sorts of different positions, in a completely different style of cricket, with huge risks involved, relative to the sport of course. And in there, are some of the same themes we've just talked about. So his passion, where are his passions? Well, he has a passion for cricket, that's for sure. Loves the game. He has a passion for test match cricket. The long form of the game. But perhaps more importantly, it feels like he has a passion for innovation. A passion for doing things differently. Or perhaps even better put, a passion for not doing things the same old way, time after time. And to an extent, it's easy for him. He could come in off the back of a succession of losses. What did he have to lose? Give it a go. He was actually given the mandate to go for it by his coach and by the leadership within England cricket, who were also new to their positions with not a lot to lose. 
but he had the courage to go for it. So that's the first thing. Second thing, his skills. An incredibly athletic cricketer, very talented in all areas of the game. So he understood all areas of the game, and that is batting, bowling and fielding, and also a brilliant reader of the game, understanding what was going on and what was required. And we saw that in the World Cup final in 2019, and in the Ashes summer of the same year. So again, he had the credibility to lead from that position. And then he went on to include everybody, to bring everyone on that journey, creating a trusted and safe environment for them. And the best example I can think of here is with his treatment of one of the batsmen. And this was Zach Crawley, who had once scored 256 for England in a single innings against Pakistan. And then subsequently, could hardly lay bat on the ball for over two years. And everyone's going, why is he still playing? Drop him. Find someone better. But Stokes trusted him, backed him, and now he's starting to deliver. And the batsmen and bowls are playing a very aggressive style of cricket. They're playing one day or T20 style cricket in the test match arena. Very aggressive. Scoring at more than a run a ball which is completely different from the way Test cricket has always been played. And the batsmen say, it doesn't tell us what to do. We just get on with it. He trusts us to get on with it. So he's not micromanaging, as has definitely been the case in England cricket teams in the past. He's not making decisions. He's allowing them to take action, just like we saw with Wiegman. And he is removing that fear of failure, which in cricket is so important. Worrying about getting out can bring on the process of getting out itself through nerves and anxiety and unnecessary levels of tension. So he has effectively empowered his team. Now he's done that by being inclusive, but he has also displayed vulnerability throughout his career. He has taken breaks from playing to protect his mental health. He has spoken openly about his mental health struggles. And that creates trust. It's a level of authenticity that doesn't exist in a historical male leadership world. And finally, he's also done it with some social consciousness in mind. That diversity, inclusivity of different groups of people, different types of people, treating them all as one, or at least treating them comparably with one another. We got attacked by some dogs. So it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out this year because it's an ashes summer. Will that leadership style cope with the pressures associated with playing Australia? which you'll see. Let's talk about tennis now. Let's talk about Andy Murray and his impressive performances at the Australian Open where he not once but twice won five set matches before inevitably losing. Now Andy Murray, you know, his passion is around tennis, 
but it's also around fairness, and you see that a lot with him. And we'll talk about that in a minute. His skills and experience, often massively underestimated, in my opinion. I think he's just about Britain's best sportsman of the last 20 years. His men's tennis is an unbelievably high standard of athleticism and mental resilience. And he's been at the top of that for such a long time, pre his, his hip injury. And this little kind of career swan song that he's having and thoroughly deserves, in my opinion. He gets a bit of a hard time, I think. But here are the stats. He won three Grand Slams in an era in which Federer, Nadal and Djokovic have won 20 each. So they have dominated and he's won three. He's been in 11 finals and I think it was 21 semi-finals in his career. Time after time after time he would get through only to face the best of all time at their best. Now, here's the interesting thing with Andy Murray in leadership, is because he's not... Obviously, tennis is an individual sport. They talk about their teams and the teams that support them, and, of course, that's important, and he will, I'm sure, have acted in this manner with his teams, perhaps maturing, perhaps in his younger days, he's a little bit headstrong. Who wasn't? But Murray's inclusivity really comes from the way he has spoken up for women in, in the sport. This is a very famous incident from way back in 2017 when he was knocked out in the quarterfinals of Wimbledon by Sam yeah. Querrey, an American tennis player. And in the post-match press conference, he was asked about Sam Querrey and what he thought. And, that, and in that, the journalist said, it's the first American semi-finalist at Wimbledon since 2009 which point Murray corrected the journalist and said the first male player because of course Serena Williams had been dominating at that point and that raised a number of eyebrows but it, the biggest one of all was about how he thought as an individual and how even in that moment where he'd just been defeated his dream had gone He was able to take an inclusive approach to a question he probably didn't really feel like answering. So, if Murray's passionate about tennis and fairness, if he's got the skills and experience over many years, and he's got an inclusive mindset, he is also socially conscious. And I think what's interesting here is he's conscious in a way that someone like Novak Djokovic isn't. And I'll take you back to his attitude to COVID and vaccinations and his responsibility towards others. And the reason I'm going to talk about Messi in this, Lionel Messi, the great Argentinian footballer, is because there's a lot of debate about the greatest of all time. It happens in social media, it's good clickbait, isn't it? No rights or wrongs. And in those GOAT debates, I think people struggle to separate performance from personality. Messi versus Ronaldo, for example. Pelé versus Maradona. Federer 
Raul Nadal versus Djokovic. And for me, that's about leadership. What kind of leader is Ronaldo? What kind of leader is Djokovic? Versus what kind of leader is Federer? And what kind of leader is Messi? Or, even more so, Pele. How sustainable are those two models of leadership? How engaging are they? And how empathetic are they? So, there we go. Leadership. Empathetic leadership. I think what I'm proposing is that there's four things that make empathetic leaders strong at what they do. There's a passion for what they do that might transcend the thing they're involved in, the thing that they are leading. They have skills and experience that provide them with credibility. They have inclusive approaches which have agreement and involvement at their core, creating commitment, creating independence, taking action, fear of uh, removing the fear of failure rather. And empathetic leaders are socially conscious. But I guess the question I posed at the very beginning is, is it sustainable leadership? And what happens next? How does it carry on? How does the work of those sustainable leaders endure after they've gone? What comes after Wiegmann, Southgate, Stokes? And of course that's in part about succession strategies. And I really hope that all of those organisations we've been speaking about are planning now and have worked out not just who, but how they want the leadership to continue to manifest itself over time. And that they actively seek to build on what's been built already. Time will tell. And then finally, I just want to bring this back to running. Because sustainability sits very firmly in how we should be approaching running, in my opinion. Because, can we do it forever? Oh, we might be able to, who knows? But how do we do it sustainably? Do we focus on the short term and just bashing it out in the hope of a PB at the next race? Or are we thinking broader and longer term? How do I keep running in 10 years' time? How do I keep giving myself goals for a year and two years? And what do I need to do tomorrow to get to those goals? in one, two, ten years' time. So, I've enjoyed this conversation, partly because it's been with myself, partly because I've enjoyed Hampstead Heath, even though it's been a little bit busier than I was hoping for. Certainly busier than I'm used to. But it's also good to look at leadership, isn't it? Look at yourself, look at your leaders, look at yourself as a leader, look at yourself as a runner. How sustainable is what you do? How sustainable is what you're doing? And what can you do to make it more sustainable in the future? All good questions to ask. But for now, I'm going to head off back into the streets 
through Bellsize Park, Primrose Hill, Regent's Park, back into London. So thanks for joining me as ever. I hope it's been vaguely interesting. And if it hasn't, I hope it's helped you get some sleep. And I'll be back again soon for something, for something else. And in the meantime, please take care. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.